0: well before we jump into today i want to tell you about something coming up in two weeks starting august the 20th that we're really excited about is a brand new series starting two weeks from today and the series i think they're going to put it up here the series is called who needs god who needs god and um let me tell you why i'm so excited about this series what we're going to do is we're going to take a series of weeks and i'm going to address a very unique audience with a very unique approach, okay? And I'll tell you more about the approach next week. You don't want to miss that because it's important for you to know if you come here what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But the unique audience that I'm going to be addressing are the group of people in our community. Some of them are family members of yours. Some of them are friends. Some of them are co-workers or classmates. Uh, Some of them are you. You're, You're here today because a friend invited you, but you'd fall into this category. It is a group of people who have chosen to walk away from faith to walk away from God, to walk away from church. And they have very valid reasons as to why they chose to do that. But I want to address some of those reasons, and I'm going to talk about some of those frustrations and doubts and criticisms and skepticisms that they carry with them about faith, about church, and maybe even about God. This is a growing number of people in our community and a growing number of people in our nation. And so I'm going to do a series where we just address it very openly with them. So I tell you that a couple of reasons one I think this is going to be one of the most important series I've ever done here so I would love it if you're a follower of Jesus and a part of our church to start praying now for the people who are going to be here and be a part and then I would love 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 for you to invite anybody you know who falls into that category who's walked away or who's kind of just you know they may not be antagonistic towards church they could be but they may just be apathetic and be like okay that's for you but I'm just kind of done with that I would love for you to invite them to be with us starting August the 20th for Who Needs God. And uh, as you leave today, we've actually created some invite cards that hopefully will make it a little simpler for you to invite. So you can grab those at the top of the stairs, at those little tables where the handouts are. You can just grab a handful of them. You can stick them on your desk at work. You can stick them in your car. They can be great conversation starters, hopefully, for you uh, as you invite and spread the word about this series. Now, if you're wondering well, why in the world would you do a series like that and why in the world would you talk to that group of people in church. I mean, uh, let's, let's just think about this logically. They're not in church, and yet you're going to try to talk to them in church. Well, there, a lot of them do come to our church and check it out. Some of you are here today, and we're so glad to have you. We created this place for you, and the whole reason we would do this series is because there is something that happened when Jesus was on this earth, and you see it in all of the historical accounts that were written about his life. Something happened that absolutely still to this day, fascinates me, and I'll explain why it fascinates me in just a minute. But it is this simple idea. When you look at the historical accounts of Jesus, you discover that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. In other words, if you're somebody who walked away from faith, or, you know, God or church or wherever you are and all of that, here's what I know. Or if you've got a family member or friend who walked away, here's what I know. If there were a way for us to take you all and to transport you back in time and to say, okay, here, here we go. You're going to get to meet Jesus face to face. If we could take you back in time to do that, what I am confident of is that you would like Jesus, even if you've walked away from faith and church and all of that stuff, that once you've met Jesus, you would like him. You might not believe everything about him, but you would like him. And maybe even more importantly, he would like you back. Now, what, one of the reasons this fascinates me so much is because this is not what any of us would expect. This is not how the relationship we would think it would go. You would expect that, you know, holy people hang out with other holy people because that's kind of what we see today. Religious people hang out with other religious people. That tends to be the norm. You know, godly people, quote-unquote, or good people hang out with other godly or good people. It's the way it tends to work. And yet, the holiest man on the planet, when you read the historical accounts of his life, you find he spent most of his time with people who, by their own admission, were very, very unholy people. And not just the godliest man on the planet, but God in human flesh chose to spend his time with people who would, by their own admission, say they were very ungodly people. And they not only loved being around him, but he loved being around them. And it absolutely drove the religious leaders of the first century crazy. They couldn't understand. As a matter of fact, they began calling Jesus. They developed a little nickname for him. They called him a friend of sinners. And it was not a compliment. It was a criticism. It was like, we don't get it. He spends so much time with these people that we don't want anything to do with. And they don't darken the doors of the temple. And we wouldn't want him in there even if they tried to come. What in the world is he up to? If he's really who he says he is, he wouldn't spend time with those people. And so they call it, started calling him a friend of sinners. And the reason they got this so confused was because they didn't understand what it meant to actually be holy. They thought that was a big deal to be holy. They just misunderstood what it meant. Here's what they thought. They thought holy equals apart from. They thought holy equals apart from. We still see this today. There's so many people who think this way. If you run in church circles or you talk to Christians, you you run into Christians who think like this. They believe that holy equals apart from. In other words, they thought, okay... The more set apart you are, the more you isolate and separate yourself from everybody else, the better off you are in God's eyes. The more of God's favor you're going to earn. And so they created all of these rules. Like They didn't want anything to do with people who were unholy. They weren't going to you know, shake their hand. Their rules were you don't walk into their home, you don't eat dinner with them, you don't shake their hand, you don't associate with them in any way, you just stay as far away from those people as possible. And then Jesus comes along and he does the exact opposite. Jesus sits down for dinner with these kinds of people all the time. He shows up at their parties. They throw parties at their home. Imagine this. Invite God. Like, you won't even invite the preacher to your party because you're like, I don't want him to see. Like, they would invite Jesus to their party. He would show up and everything would be cool. Can you imagine? Hey, there he comes into our frat party. Isn't that interesting? It was just like, they were fine with that. They were perfectly fine with that because they knew he was fine with that. He would show up at their parties and everything would be okay. He would sleep in their homes, spend the night in their homes. He even, and this, again, we just take this for granted. We know the stories, but he invited them to be his followers. Not one of his original 12 disciples came out of that religious group. They were these type of people, and he said, yeah, I want you to follow me. And the religious leaders are going, are you kidding me? Why would you pick them? Why would you pick them? Why would you pick them? Because they assumed holy equals apart from and Jesus comes along and says, nope, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. Holy doesn't equal apart from. Holy equals engaged with. He completely redefined holiness. To be holy does not equal apart from. Jesus would say to us today, to be holy doesn't mean that you live in your safe little Christian bubble and you keep your safe little group of Christian friends and you do your Christian cardio and Christian yoga and you know, have the Christian stuff in your car and listen to all the Christian music and eat your Christian chicken. That's what we call Chick-fil-A. I'm all for Chick-fil-A, by the way. That part is fine. But anyway, he would say, that's not, that's not what you're doing. That is not what you're doing. That is not what it means to be holy. Holy does not mean apart from. Holy means engaged with. This is what Jesus taught. If you, you know, have a hard time you know, wrapping your head around this, just go read the Gospels, the story of his life, and start thinking about it through this lens. Jesus taught holy equals you engage with. In other words, to be holy means you don't lean away, you lean into the mess. To be holy means you don't walk away, you walk toward the mess. To be holy, the holiest people, Jesus taught this, the holiest people are not the ones with clean hands. They are the ones with dirty hands. They are the ones who get right in the middle of the mess and walk with people and engage with people who are in the middle of behaviors that may not be acceptable, in the middle of beliefs that they may not agree with, who are in the middle of a life that may not be healthiest or best for them. But Jesus taught, the way you're holy, this is so different for them, it's so different for us, the way you're holy, it's not to be set apart from. It is to be engaged with And the reason people who were nothing like Jesus liked him and he liked them back was because there was a mutual acceptance there. Those people knew he doesn't agree with what I do. Those people knew he doesn't agree with that choice. Those people knew he doesn't agree with this lifestyle. But he accepts me for who I am. And they loved him for it. And they wanted to be around him all the time. And then Jesus put his stamp on it to make sure they had no doubt that he accepted them. And they, we had no doubt he accepted us. When he went to a cross and he died and he rose again and got his hands as dirty as you can possibly get them to show people, I'm not going to be set apart from you. I'm going to be engaged with you and I'm going to die and rise again to pay the penalty for your sin. And then, for about 40 days later, He's got a small group of these Jewish followers gathered around him. And he looks at him and he says, I'm about to leave. And I'm going to take this extraordinary message that God is for people, for all people, and that I died and rose again for the sins of all people, that forgiveness is available to all people. I'm taking this extraordinary message. I'm out of here. I'm going to put it in your hands, you everyday, ordinary, non-religious, irreligious Jewish people. I'm going to put it in your hands. Now I want you to go let everybody know. As a matter of fact, here are the exact words that he gave them. He said this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Now, again, we can't get this because we just didn't grow up this way. We didn't live in this culture, but these are Jewish people. And even though they're not super religious, these Jewish people have grown up in a culture where it has been taught that God loves their people, that their people, the Jewish people, are holier than everybody else, that God favors them more, that they shouldn't associate, they shouldn't uh, interact, they should have as little as possible to do with anyone who's non-Jewish. They are the most unclean. And then any Jew who's not super religious, they're the next most unclean. I mean, they, they have been taught this their whole lives. So they hear Jesus say, okay, here's the message. Now go and share that message with all nations. Literally, the word nations means ethnic groups. And when they heard that, they went, whoa, 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 excuse me, didn't you mean with all Jewish groups? No, 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 Jesus said, I don't mean with all Jewish groups, I mean with all ethnic groups. And then he left. And guess what these Jewish followers did? They started looking at each other, scratching their heads going, he couldn't have meant that, that can't be right. Because again, this is just how they've been programmed. This is a culture they've been raised in. These are the stereotypes and beliefs that they were taught from the time they were a child, so they're thinking it can't be right. He couldn't have meant all nations. Because all those other people groups out there that aren't Jewish, they eat things we know aren't holy. They dress in ways we know aren't holy. They talk with words that definitely are not holy. They believe things that none of us think are holy. There's no way he meant go give that to all of them. This couldn't possibly be for all people. It has to just be for us Jewish people because we're the ones who God loves the most. And so guess what they did? They just stayed right there in Jerusalem. They ignored what Jesus said. They stayed right in the middle of Jerusalem, and they started sharing the message with all the Jewish people who were just like them, and all the Jewish people who just needed a little bit of encouragement to become a little more faithful to God. And the word, the message spread among all these Jewish people, and every now and then it would leak out, and they'd kind of freak out, oh no, somebody's not Jewish, heard it, get it back in here, get it back in here. They just kept it Jewish, and so God had to start trying to force them out of Jerusalem, and he, he arranged or navigated several different circumstances that would try to force them out. And even though he got them, there's a persecution that broke out that spread them out into different parts of the known world. But even with all of that, they were so hesitant to take this message and engage with people who were not Jewish, who were not, in their eyes, quote unquote, holy. And so, eventually, Jesus decides I'm going to have to have an interaction with Peter. You guys have heard of Peter, if you're a church person or not. You've heard of Peter, the Apostle Peter. If nothing else, you think Peter's at the pearly gates waiting to let you in. So you've heard, you've heard of him in some respect. He's in a lot of jokes. So you've heard of Peter. Okay, here's the thing. Peter's one of the leaders, obviously. He, he's, one of, he's one of the key influencers in this early church movement of Jesus followers. And Peter's like all the rest of them. Peter says, I know what he said, but sure, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And so Peter ends up having an extraordinary experience where God makes it crystal clear to him, Peter, this is not just for some people. You are not to be apart from people who aren't Jewish. You're supposed to be engaged with all people, everybody, and this interaction takes place with the most unlikely of characters, as you're about to see, Luke Luke, who investigated all of the stories. Luke wouldn't want Jesus' original 12 disciples. Luke heard about Jesus after his resurrection. He came to believe. He went and investigated all the stories and talked to all the eyewitnesses to make sure it was true. And Luke wrote a couple of accounts. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. Such creative naming by us Christians, isn't it? The Gospel of Luke, so that we knew about the life of Jesus based on his research and investigation. And then he wrote what's known as the the Acts of the Apostles, which was a document that explained to us the what happened with that early church and some of their history. And in this document we call Acts, he tells us this story where Peter is just his whole paradigm about who God is for and who he should engage with. is just blown up. It's turned upside down with this very unlikely character. So in Acts chapter 10, here's how the story starts. As Caesarea, Luke tells us, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, let me just pause there because, again, it means nothing to us. But for anybody who was Jewish who was reading Luke's account, they were going, seriously, are you kidding? This guy had three strikes against him. This guy was Cornelius. He was not a Jew. There's strike one. He was Roman. There's strike two. And he was a commander of 100 Roman soldiers, a Roman battalion. He was part of the Italian Regiment, which meant he was living in a Jewish town called Caesarea, as an occupying force. He was the commander of the occupying force who was making sure the Jews did the Romans bidding. He was the enemy. He was the reason they did not have the freedom they wanted to have. Can you imagine? Luke says, hey, for all you Jewish readers, listen, this guy, this guy, he was not a Jew. He was a Roman. and He was the enemy. Which is why when they read this next statement Luke wrote, they couldn't believe it. Luke describes Cornelius this way. He says this, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now again, this is cultural, but they knew this term God-fearing, they knew exactly what it meant. What God-fearing meant was this, was a Gentile had decided to believe in the Jewish God. That's what this meant. This was actually a very exact term for them. Anytime they talked about a God-fearing Gentile, a God-fearing Greek, a God-fearing Roman, what it meant was, and this is what happened with Cornelius, he had ended up in Caesarea over this army of a hundred Roman soldiers, and he's you know, maintaining the peace there. But in the course of being among these Jewish people, he comes to learn about the Jewish God, and he chooses to believe in and begin to follow the Jewish God. Except he doesn't officially convert to Judaism and probably, we don't know this for sure, there were five different steps you had to take to convert to Judaism, but there was one that was a real barrier for men. It was called circumcision. That's probably why he hadn't gone that route. So he's he's saying, I believe, I'm going to follow, but the Jewish people in Caesarea are like, okay, great. We... We see how generous you are. We love you. Gener- okay, okay, we're not going to argue. You're more generous than some of us. We see how you pray. Okay, you pray more than some of us. But it doesn't matter. You still can't be a part of our group. You still can't be a part of our religious circle because you're not officially one of us. You've got to be on the outside looking in. And as he's in this situation in Caesarea, here's what Luke says transpires. Verse 3. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, this is so, this is so specific, isn't it? Just real quickly. If you don't believe, you know, like all oh, the Bible's made up and all these, these writers, they just made up this stuff you got to pay attention to the specifics. Like Luke's writing this at a time when people could actually go and talk to Cornelius and ask him himself if this happened. Like they're so specific in their details. It does not read like a a fairy tale. One day at about three in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision, Luke says. He distinctly saw an angel of God, which if you're not a Christian, you're like, oh boy, here we go. I don't buy into all that. Well, that's fine. But Cornelius told Luke this is what happened. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius... And Cornelius stared at him, Luke says, in fear. Well, of course he did, because if you see an angel, you're going to respond in fear. If you ever tell me you see an angel and it didn't freak you out, I'm going to tell you you're a liar. I am, because it scares you. It scared anybody who ever saw an angel. So what is it, Lord, with a lot of fear, Cornelius asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. In other words, Cornelius, hey, These Jewish people, you're not sure if God's paying attention because they tell you God's not really for you. I just want you to know, the angel says, God's paying attention. He's seen what you're doing. And as you're about to see, he's for you. Let's keep reading. Now the angel says to Cornelius, send men to Joppa, which was a small seacoast Jewish town. Send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. Here's our guy, Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, this is so specific, whose house is by the sea, so you'll know exactly where he is. And the story continues. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, a Roman soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. Now, meanwhile, Peter is back in Joppa, At the home of this man named Simon the Tanner, he's staying there with him. And we presume, we don't know this, but we presume Peter is there to share the message of Jesus with Jewish people there. He's living in his Jewish bubble right there in Joppa, and he's doing what's most comfortable to him. And it's about a two-day, if I remember correctly, it's about a two-day travel time by foot to get from Caesarea to Joppa. So Cornelius sends these men about two days later as they're showing up in Joppa. It's about lunchtime, and Peter is up on the roof of this house. Again, this is normal for them. It was a seacoast town. I'm sure there's a breeze. It's a great place to cool off. Peter's waiting, Luke tells us, for lunch to be ready. And as he's up there, God begins to speak to Peter. And he gives Peter this vision, and it happens a couple of times where there's a huge sheet that comes down from heaven, and there are all these animals on this sheet that the Jewish people considered unclean and unholy to eat. If you eat that, you can't go in the temple. If you eat that, you might get you will eventually get kicked out of the Jewish religious circles. I mean, this was a big deal to them. we can't get this, but it's a big deal to them. And so this sheet lowers down, and Peter sees all of these animals on it, and then he hears God's voice say, "Peter, eat." and Peter just he's like. Oh, no, God, you, you've said not to eat this. We don't believe you wants to eat this. I would never, I never have, I never will, I never will, I never will. And he's arguing with God over this. And God says, No, 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 you don't understand. If I tell you it's clean, if I tell you it's fine, it's fine. If I tell you it's holy, it's holy. And then God says to Peter, There's about to be a knock on the door. There are going to be a couple men there asking you to follow them to Caesarea to meet with a Roman centurion guard. Go with them. And that's it. And as soon as God says that, Peter hears a knock on the door. Sure enough, the men are there. And Peter's thinking, oh, I don't don't have a choice. I don't want to go with them. I don't want anybody to see me going with them. This is so against what our customs. But what do I do? I've got no choice. And so, you know, Peter takes off with these guys. And I don't know. I'm just reading between the lines. But my guess is he's like, you know, let's take the back roads, okay? because I don't I don't want to get seen by all my Jewish buddies being with some Gentiles and with a Roman guard who's accompanying us. Like I don't want to see that. They're either going to assume I got arrested or worse, they're going to find out I'm going with you to your home and they're going to kick me out. They're not going to have anything to do with me. So Peter travels with these guys back to Caesarea. He gets to the front yard of Cornelius' house. This is all in Luke's account. He gets to the front yard of Cornelius' house. And Cornelius comes out to meet him. And Peter begins to have a conversation with him. And Cornelius is like, i got a huge crowd of people here. Come on in. We're all waiting to hear from you. And I don't know if this is what happened. But my guess is Peter got to the front door and thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can do it. Because he knew, and we we can't understand the gravity of this, but he knew if I step across that doorway into a Gentile's house, it's over for me with my Jewish buddies. They all will view me as unclean. They all will view me as unholy. I won't be allowed in the temple. I won't be allowed to worship with them. The minute I step in, everything changes. And I'm out of their circles. But he's got no option. God told him, you got to go. So he steps in. And when he walks into the house, here's what Luke tells us happens. Verse 27. While talking with Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And they're all waiting to hear what he has to say. Now, before I read you what he said to them, I want you to imagine as best you can that you're in that house and that you are one of these Gentile or non-Jewish people. I want you to imagine you're one of these people that you have spent your whole life knowing how the Jews viewed you, knowing how the Jews thought about you, seeing how the Jews treated you. Don't you imagine that you're one of these people that know, okay, Jews, they don't eat with us, they don't talk to us, they don't come in our home, they don't have any interaction with us whatsoever. They think we're as low as it comes in humanity. Imagine you're one of these people, and this is what you hear from Peter. Here's the best speech Peter could come up with. You, this is what he's saying to all of them, you are well aware that it's against our law, and he's not talking about the national civil law, but the religious law, okay? It's against our Jewish religious law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. This is how he starts. This is so kind, isn't it? He doesn't start with, hey, thanks for inviting me. He starts with, hey, you all know I shouldn't be here and it's against the law to do this because we don't think much of you guys. This is how he starts. Not very kind and compassionate. He goes on. He says, You're probably wondering why I'm here, but God, okay, this is the only reason I showed up. I really don't want anything to do with you guys. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Implication I have been calling you impure and unclean, and I am convinced you are. But God told me I shouldn't do it. So I'm trying to refrain. This is kind of like, you know when you get mad at somebody? You remember when you did this as a kid? You got mad at your brother or your sister, and your parents were there, so you didn't, you know, you, you want to call him an idiot, but you knew you'd get in trouble, so you look at them and say, I want to call you an idiot, but Mama won't let me. And it kind of got the message across? That's exactly what Peter does here. I want to call you impure and unclean, but God said I couldn't, so I'm not going to, but you know what I'm thinking while I'm standing here. I mean, this is... This is so insensitive. He goes on. He says, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. (laughs) Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Let's just get this over with. i got to get out here. And by the way, everybody keep your phones away. Do not post this on social media. I don't want any proof that I was here. Let's just hurry up and get this over with. And so here's what happens next. Verse 30, Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, Peter. And then Cornelius is so gracious, and it was good of you to come. In spite of the insult you just gave us all. We know how hard it was for you to walk in here. It was good of you to come. And so now Peter jumps back in. Now, or excuse me, Cornelius, he says, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Peter, we're just here to learn from you. We don't know what God wants you to tell us. We just know we're supposed to listen. And we're willing. So now Peter jumps in and begins to explain it. Peter began to speak. I now realize... How true it is! His heart's starting to change a little bit. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Again, implication because Peter would say, because all of our us Jewish people, we believe we're God's favorites. We've spent centuries as a people thinking we're God's favorites, and He loves us more, and He cares about us more, and He's for us and not for you. Okay, I'm, I'm beginning to see that I've had this all wrong. I'm beginning to see that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. And I don't know if this is true, but I bet at this moment, what's going through Peter's mind is, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Jesus did tell us to go make disciples of all nations. We just didn't think he really meant it. I think he meant it now. I guess we should have been doing this all along. It's obvious to me. If God has sent an angel to communicate to somebody who's as irreligious and as unclean and unholy as you Gentile people, you Romans, well then... He must accept, if he can accept you, he must accept people from every nation. He accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Peter continues. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, this is such a pivotal moment. And again, we didn't live in this culture, so we read this and think, okay, what's the big deal? But this was such a huge deal for Peter. Because in this moment, Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, Peter finally realizes what Jesus tried to teach him for three years. Peter finally realizes peace through Jesus Christ and what he did on a cross. Peace with God is not just for good Jewish people. Peace with God is not just for church people. Peace with God is not just religious people. Peter finally realizes peace with God is for all people. It's for all people. He finally realizes peace with God is available not just to this little circle that we've been spreading the message around and we've been trying to keep it from leaking out to anybody else. No, God doesn't view people the way we view people. He thinks it's open to every body. That the people, don't miss this, that the people we have been trying to avoid He wants to accept. The people we've been trying to avoid, their Heavenly Father accepts them even though we haven't. This was such a pivotal moment. Such a pivotal moment. But, here we are 2,000 years later, and Christians, and I don't think anybody would argue this, Christians, we still struggle with this exact same tension, don't we? We still have a tendency to try to be apart from instead of engaged with we still have a tendency to think okay this isn't really for everybody like this is for us and we're just gonna create church experiences that we love and we enjoy and once somebody out there gets it you know if they straighten up and they prove that they have kinda you know live in the life we live and they believe like we believe then okay then they can come in and they'll feel apart but we're not gonna go out of our way to make sure they know God accepts them we're not gonna go out of our way to accept them like we're just we're separated apart from we're gonna separate and isolate ourselves Christians today still have a tendency to look at people who do not believe like we believe or behave the way we behave and view them as problems to avoid and not people to love. And we miss it. We miss it because that is not how our Heavenly Father views the people in our community and in our world. It's not how he views the people that you and I interact with every day. You see, From our Heavenly Father's point of view, this is what he believes. He believes that everybody is invited, everybody is included, and everybody is important. This is what it means. From our Heavenly Father's point of view, don't miss this, there is no person that we have ever locked eyes with who doesn't matter infinitely to him. There's no person we've ever locked eyes with who is beyond his ability to love and accept and forgive. Now, The reason I don't want you to miss that is that includes the person that you see from time to time, and there is so much anger, there is so much frustration, there is so much judgmentalism, there is so much criticism in your heart of I can't believe and what's their deal and why do they think and well, you know, they they're never gonna get their act together and well that's what they they got what was coming to them. All of those people, you're like, yeah, they hurt me and you don't understand. If you heard my story, okay, I get it, I get it, I, I, I get it. If I heard your story, I'd be like, yeah, that was terrible. But from your heavenly Father's point of view, that very person that you can't stand matters infinitely to him. He loves them just as much as he loves you, and they're just as valuable to him as you are. From his point of view, that person is invited to have a relationship with him. That person is included in what Jesus did on the cross and the forgiveness he offers all of us. And that person is as important to him as you are. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're somebody who's walked away from faith, and you, I'm going to guess, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to guess you walked away. Because that is not the message you got when you interacted with or encountered Christians or the church. But if you get nothing else today, I hope you get this. We don't really want anything from you. Well, what we want is something for you. I would love for you to walk away and know that this just might be true for you that your heavenly father is not angry with you and he's not chasing you down, trying to pay you back for what you've done, that he wants to win you back, that he's not out trying to, you know, punish you for where you broke rules, that he's actually trying to invite you into a relationship with him. And he wants you, listen, he wants you not to call him omnipotent God. He wants you to call him and invites you to call him Father. That is the relationship he wants with you. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, let me just tell you what I think this means in a very practical way. Here's here's one lesson we can walk away from that Peter understood he finally got that day that all of us need to get, all of us need to remember, and all of us need to practice. It is simply this. As Christians, you should lean relationally in the direction of those who are different than you. If what Jesus said is true, if our Heavenly Father really feels about people the way Jesus taught, then you should and I should lean relationally in the direction of those different than you. In other words, as Christians we should be the very first people to reach a hand across a divide. We should be the first people to reach a hand across racial divides, religious divides, We should be the first people to reach a hand across gender divides or generational divides. We should be the first people to reach a hand across political divides, sexual orientation divides, you know, all all of these issues that tend to get so heated and so hot. In other words, we should be the very first people as Christians not to lean in towards the people who agree like us and believe like us and think like us. We should actually lean relationally and reach a hand across the divide in the direction of people who believe believe and think differently than us. People who live socially in a different way, people who believe politically in a different way, people who behave morally in a different way. That means, don't, don't miss this, that means, well, we're, this is so hard to do, and we're, as Christians we're so terrible at this, we've got to get better. That means, whatever side of a political spectrum you're on, As a Christian, the most loving thing for you to do is not to bunker down with all of the people who believe just like you do on the Republican side or the Democratic side. It's instead to reach across the divide and initiate a conversation or relationship with someone who believes and thinks differently than you. Not to try to win them over to your point, but to try to love them and learn more about who they are and where they're coming from. It means that we should be the first person to lean in relationally and reach a hand across a divide when we see stereotypical or racist perspectives that people are demonstrating towards someone of another race or ethnicity, towards someone who's a migrant worker, towards someone who you know, lives in an area of town that people are like, oh, they got stereotypes about them, and they must all be. No, no, no. As Christians, that's not where we ought to be living. We ought to be reaching a hand across And building relationships with people who are different than us. And showing them very practically that God is for them by how well we love them. I'll tell you what this means. This is going to get really personal. This means that the people that tend to agitate or aggravate or anger you the most. And you go on social media and you want to make a rant about them. Because that waiter didn't do, and so you're going to get on and let everybody know how terrible the service was there. And that doctor didn't do, so you're going to get on and let everybody know how terrible it was. And that city council member didn't vote the way you want him to vote, so you're going to get on. Not that that's happened around here at all in the last couple of weeks. Been no talk of that. But, but you're got, all those people that you tend to vilify, all those people that you want to say, yep, they're the problem, yep, you're the problem, yep, I'm going to tell people about you, I'm going to let people know what you did, listen, Those are people, do not miss this, those are people who are loved by their Heavenly Father just as much as you are. And what you should be doing is reaching your hand across the divide and leaning relationally in their direction to love them and to build a friendship with them. Not ranting about them on social media. All you're doing is burning a bridge. And all you're doing is reinforcing a stereotype. And when we as Christians do not love those people and respect those people who believe or act differently than us, we are being terrible Christians, terrible Christians, because we are representing Jesus in the exact opposite of how and who he really is. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a question to wrestle with this week. And it is not an easy question, and it's going to make some of you uncomfortable and some of you are going to ignore it, and some of you are going to, you know, justify why you shouldn't act on it, but I'm telling you, this gives all of us something we ought to do this week. There is a step for every one of us. The question is simply this: Who do you need to lean in and love? Who do you need to lean in and love? Who do you need to reach a hand across the divide and get to know a little bit better? For some of you, you need to go to lunch with someone who you have discreetly or probably not so discreetly demonstrated you're not for them. You don't like them. And you don't want to have anything to do with them. You would like to interact with them as little as possible. You need to schedule a lunch with them. Not to argue but to listen, not to argue, but to lean in relationally and begin to build a relationship and try to learn their story and understand their point of view and let them know that you care. Some of us, we need to go a step further and we need to make some apologies, issue some apologies because of things we've said, because of ways we've communicated, because of how we've treated certain people. Now, let me just tell you, If you're one of those people who put something on social media, I'm not following social media, so I don't know who you are, okay? But if you're one of those people who's got something on social media, do not go this morning and open up your phone as soon as I'm done and delete that post because everybody's already read that post. Instead, you hit an edit on that post, and at the very top, you say, I need to issue an apology because I'm a follower of Jesus, and I did the exact opposite of what Jesus would do. And I communicated the exact opposite about how Jesus feels about this person, so I want to publicly say I'm sorry because I publicly ripped them. That's what you need to do. I told you it wouldn't be easy, but that's what you need to do. You got to have a coffee with somebody you got to get to know somebody. You need to invite some people into your home for dinner. You need to lean relationally in the direction of those who are different than you because they matter just as much to their Heavenly Father as you do to Him. They do. Now let me tell you why this matters so much, and I'll wrap up. I don't want you to miss this. This matters because the way Jesus designed it to work is that people will know how much God loves them by how well we love them as his followers. He said this. He said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples or you're my followers, by your love one for another. He said, if you love one another, then you love me. The reason I said when we get this wrong we're being terrible Christians is not to make us all feel guilty. We all already know we're guilty. We've all messed this up at times. It's this. When I, as a follower of Jesus, behave in a way or communicate in a way towards someone, I treat someone in a way that is opposite what Jesus would do if he were physically here. You know what I've just done? I have created a barrier or an obstacle to that person ever understanding and experiencing God's love in their life. Because they will, and rightly so, they will associate how I treat them as a follower of Jesus with how Jesus would treat them if he were here. And some of us are creating barriers and obstacles making it more difficult for our Heavenly Father to communicate His love instead of making it easier. So we've got to get this right. We've got to figure out how to lean in and love. Not just the people who are like us. Come on, that's easy. Not just the people who agree with us. That's simple. We've got to figure out how to lean in and love people who are different than us. And we've got to show them God's love in a very tangible way. Because when they see God's love through us, they'll experience and know God's love for them. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, Matt, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still getting this screwed up. Like churches, we still mess this up. Like, how do you keep this from happening? And I, it's, a tough, it's a tough problem. We do still mess it up. And the reason why is because the gravitational pull of every local church is to focus inward, not outward is to think about ourselves, not somebody else. But if there's anything encouraging about this, it is that Peter and the early church still didn't get it right after this experience with Cornelius. Would you believe that? After all that that happened, after everything Peter saw, after he shared, he went on, if you read the rest of the story, he went on to share with them about Jesus' death and resurrection. They all said, we believe. Peter said, do you want to go public with this? And they said, absolutely, and they were all baptized. He went back to Jerusalem, and Peter told all of the Jewish leaders of the early church, hey, you're not going to believe it, you're not going to believe it, but God actually saved those Gentiles. He forgave them. Can you believe that? He did. I saw it. I know. I can't explain it either. He forgave those Gentiles. That conversation actually happened, and they went, my goodness, we can't imagine, we can't believe it. Maybe we should take the message to everybody, and then you know what they did? No, 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 I still can't believe. That was just an an aberration. I still can't believe that's really right. And they kept struggling with it. They went a few more years before they finally got this right once and for all. And when they got it right, they realized, okay, there are four things we need to be doing. If we do these four things, we'll keep from drifting back. If we do these four things as a church, it's still true for us. If we'll do these four things as a church, we will not become a group of people who are apart from. We will remain a group of people who are engaged with. And so we're going to talk about those four things that we need to do as a church next week. Come back for that. This week, who do you need to lean in and love? Let me pray for us. Father, it's so hard to do. I would say most of us wishes this were true of us, but When it comes right down to it, it's so hard to lean relationally in the direction of people who are different than us and not argue and fight and try to convince them we're right and they're wrong. And we've gotten this wrong at times. Help us, just make us aware of what those times are, where we need to issue some apologies, where we need to extend a hand across the divide. The people you've placed around us right now that we need to reach out towards this week. Make us aware of that and then give us not just the wisdom to know what to do, but the courage to do it even when it's hard. And we thank you, Jesus, for doing this for us and getting your hands dirty when we did not deserve it. Amen.